This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, John Darneal, is the founder, songwriter, and singer of The Mountain Goats. His lyrics are literary, often telling stories about fictional characters or stories straight from his life. In Spin Magazine, Joe Gross, no relation, described Darneal as one of rock's most prolific and devoutly worshipped songwriters. Darneal's expanded beyond lyrics into novels. His first was about a teenaged boy in a psychiatric institution who is obsessed with heavy metal, particularly the Black Sabbath album Master of Reality. The new novel, Wolf in White Van, is about a man who at the age of 17 intentionally shot himself in the face with his father's rifle. He survives with chronic pain and a face so disfigured he seldom ventures into public. But he always preferred to live in his head and in his fantasies, fantasies inspired by games, heavy metal music, and comic books like Conan the Barbarian. While recovering, he creates a fantasy game of his own that leads to serious trouble. Darneal not only writes about troubled teenagers, he used to work with them as an assistant nurse and counselor in psychiatric institutions, and he had his own share of trouble when he was a teenager, as we'll hear. John Darneal, welcome to Fresh Air. Let me ask you to start from a reading from Wolf in White Fan. This is the adult version of, of the character talking about people's reaction to his disfigured face. Nobody ever asks me if they can look at my face, except doctors and nurses, I mean. People do look at it quite often, but usually only if they can convince themselves that I won't notice they're looking. They try not to let their eyes stop wandering when they look over in my direction. They pose as if they were surveying some broader scene. I understand a little the social dictate to not stare at misshapen people. You want to spare their feelings. You don't want them to feel ugly. At the same time, though, even before I became what I am, I used to wonder, isn't it okay to stare if something seems to stand out? Why not stare? My own perspective is probably tainted by having spent long hours before mirrors after the accident. It would be pretty hard to make me feel ugly. Words like pretty and ugly exist in a different vocabulary from the one you might invent to describe a face that had to be put back together by a team of surgeons. My face is strange and terrible. It merits a little staring. That's John Darneal reading from his new novel, Wolf in White Van. Thanks for reading that. Why did you want to make your main character someone who as a teenager survived a self-inflicted gunshot in the face and has to live with the physical and psychological consequences, including pain, and a face so disfigured he rarely ventures out in public? Well, I started I started without that idea. I started just writing a scene with a bunch of teenagers at high school smoking cigarettes, the ones the one in the last chapter. Um, and it wasn't going anywhere in particular. I was just sort of trying to write a scene that was familiar to me because I used to go across the parking lot at Claremont High and smoke cigarettes with the metal kids. And uh, when I sat down to write the morning I started it, I was writing that chapter, the last one, and I had no, uh, no sense of where I was going, no outline. I had the title already because I really liked that title, um, but... but uh, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then as it ramped up toward this ending scene, it was sort of getting away from me. And then the thing that happens happened. And I thought, well, as a short story, that's not very good, right? That's like sort of a very uh, very beginner's move in a short story to have it end with somebody dying. So I thought, well, he shouldn't be dead then. What should happen? And that's when I got the idea to trace backwards to that moment. And then I started asking myself questions in the way that improvisational comedians do you know okay well, what does he do for a living what does he wear who are his friends uh how does he make any money um what does he wish he was and all those sorts of things 
And that, that performative element is sort of how I wrote the book, by just asking myself questions about, well, then, what happens then? You know, what if this happens, then what? Your, your character has survived a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Right. He says it was an accident. It'd be hard to do that to your face with a rifle. <laughs> as, well, he, call, as he calls accident. it the accident. Yeah. Uh, it is an accident. I'll defend his choice of that term, but I did do that. I did. I, I picked that one intentionally. Uh, it's uh, it's an accident insofar as he sort of got caught in a sequence of movement that sort of ran ahead of him. So it's it's not. He didn't have a premeditated plan until that evening, right? So uh, so it's an accident. And also, I think there's a there's a moment where where he talks about he and his parents settling on the word the accident in order to refer to it. Did you know people who had survived a suicide attempt? but were left in a physically compromised or disfigured state afterwards? No. I know a lot of people who survived suicide attempts, but nobody who, whose attempt is sort of advertised to the world like that. But there were, of course, uh, James Vance and Ray Belknap, the two teenagers who shot themselves after listening to Judas Priest a lot, and then their parents sued Judas Priest. Do you remember this story? Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the jumping-off part, because one of them survived the pact, and his parents, uh, or if there wasn't a real pact as far as I know, but but his parents uh, sued Judas Priest, who had to come to Reno uh, to appear to defend their music. And, and backwards masking was the main trope in this trial. And, uh, and, and I thought about all that, about things moving backwards and trying to extract sense from things by running them backwards, and that was sort of an inspiring point. Right, the backwards trope you're talking about is, yeah, yeah. is, is the Christians who maintain that if you play heavy metal records backwards, you hear the the messages that Satan has embedded in them because he's Or that using, the artist is embedded. Yeah, the, that, that, well, the artist is sometimes a, a messenger of Satan, aren't they? Yes, 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 on behalf <laughs> yes. of Satan. <laughs> yes. Um, so your character in this novel has had a lot of trouble functioning in the world. As a teenager, he's lived in the fantasies created by others, like Conan the Barbarian comics. Right. And when he is slowly recovering from his self-inflicted gunshot wound, um, he creates a game of his own. And it's a, this is in the pre-internet era, so this is like a mail-by-mail mail game where right. um, people mail in their next move and he mails in what they're supposed to do next. And the scenario is it's, um, it's a kind of desolate future in a radiated world and they have to go from one place to another through these ordeals <laughs> seeking shelter. And the people who play it are people who, like the main character, don't feel comfortable in the world as it is, and they need to retreat to a fantasy world, whether that's heavy metal or video games or the game that this character creates. Um, And I'm wondering if that was your case when you were a teenager, that you needed, you seriously needed a world to retreat to. Sure, it was music for me. I mean, it was, was, uh, and I think it's true for so many. I mean, I think... When you first start to discover which music is yours and which speaks to you, you know, I think whatever your life is like, you experience that very, very deeply. You know, everyone remembers the music of their teenage years, I think, with with a special fondness. And I think part of that's because you're just discovering the power of this amazing art form. And uh, and yeah, I mean, I had a pair of Nova 30 headphones that that were my my life raft is I would put them on and you could disappear uh, into, you know, Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal was a big one I would go into or early Janet. Early Genesis records, uh, I confess, with <laughs> a little chagrin. <laughs> and did you have comic books too? I, oh, I was a huge comic book fan. Uh, my dude was the Incredible Hulk. That was my that was my hero. Um, the, Why? The guy who, um, 
uh, I get <laughs> kind of emotional when I think about it because the Incredible Hulk was fiercely loyal to people who had treated him well. It was the the one major value in his life was he valued and treasured his friends, and that anyone who mistreated them he wanted to destroy utterly, not not just to punish but to but to pulverize. Um, and and when his when he was angry, then he or or upset in any other way. But but when he was when his emotions were too strong, he was transformed into this creature who destroyed. And and that was beautiful. I mean, it's like because it's how you feel when you have a very strong feeling of resentment or anger, and you can't do anything with it. You wish you could make people see, you know, just how how powerful it feels. You feel like if it were unleashed, it would break things, right? And and the Incredible Hulk is that just made flesh. He, he that, and he spoke in the third person about himself in a very charming way to me. I thought he was the best. Uh, and actually, when they took that away from him, I think that was when I became very disenfranchised with comics. <laughs> it's like they had him start speaking more like. Uh, General Thunderbolt Ross, you know, kind of like a, a, an army guy. And I was like, no, no, no. I need my Hulk to be talking about himself in the third person and to be of below average intelligence. It's important to me. <laughs> so did you want that power to punish, to punish people who mistreat, mistreated you or mistreated those close to you? I, I don't know that I wanted to wield the power so much as I wanted them to see what it felt like to want that. You know, it's like in your better moments, obviously you don't want to hurt anybody, you know, uh, but you have this this point of rage and powerlessness where you think, I wish you could see what it feels like this anger could do to a person, you know, and you you have those moments of, of contact with it where it feels, and it, and this is illusory, of course, if you share, William Blake talks about this, if you just let it go, if you say, this is how I feel, it dissipates, you know, but, but when, if you ha- don't have a way of doing that, if doing that will have consequences that you can't shoulder, then, then it sits there and festers and, and starts to sort of glow. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, that was the, that was the feeling is like, you know, if this, if this comes out, it will level cities, you know. Yeah, and 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 you have characters in two novels who have that kind of rage. Yes, it's it's it was a very it, 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 heavy feeling for me that I carried for a long time. And I presume that that was in part because you had a stepfather who abused you and your mother. It was. I think. I mean. I think the more I dig, the more I think that's like that's important. But so is the fact that you know that my parents divorced when I was five, which is like you know there's a lot bigger problems to have, uh, but. But at the same time, it's my life, right? And uh, and and I think there was having having to leave a home that I was perfectly happy in. I think you know was caring, and I, I did give this to Sean in that first chapter where he asks, "Why do we ever have to leave Montclair in the first place?" Right? That this feeling of having been uprooted a lot and not being able to to make friends and keep them, and then landing in a social situation in fourth or fifth grade where I had missed a bunch of social cues. Uh, by missing one summer, you know, with a bunch of kids that I knew and being trans, you know, uh, translated into an environment where I didn't know people. So a lot of that stuff, the having to move around a lot, feeling uprooted when stability is so important for children. Um, I mean, I think some of that is, is also maybe weighs just as heavily. I mean, but obviously it was a chaotic environment that I was a child in and that, that uh, yeah, it, it makes you angry after a while. So I want to play one of your songs. And yeah. um, this is a song, this is one of your better known songs. It's called The Best Ever Death Metal Band Out of Denton. And um, it's a song about, you know, teenagers who are in a, like, garage heavy metal band. Yeah. And want to be stars. Do you want to say anything about writing this? Um, I'm trying to remember. That was the summer that uh, my wife went up to hockey camp in Banff, uh, Canada, and so I was by myself, and I was starting a new job, uh, and 
if you're in any job in the healthcare professions, it's mandatory to go through some orientation where they tell you all of the rules and the OSHA stuff. Uh, so you've known it. I've been through that a million times, and I always take notes in the margins of stuff Well, I'm going through that. And I was writing song lyrics as we went. You know, these are eight-hour days in classrooms, and everybody's heard all the material before. And I forget whether I got the idea at the orientation or when I came home to an empty house because my wife was up at hockey camp. Um, but I hadn't really, I hadn't thought about that stuff in a while. But I used to work at uh, at a short-term adolescent facility in the 80s where during the time when parents were often blaming music for their adolescence troubles. And, uh, and I felt very deeply for these kids because I think that... Uh, that contact with music is sacred and it's, it's what, you know, it's what can carry you through the hard times. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a song that has a funny, a funny setup, uh, but I mean it a lot. Okay. So let's hear it. So this is uh, the mountain goats. This is John Darnielle, <laughs> uh, performing the best ever death metal band out of Denton. The best ever death metal band out of Denton was a couple of guys who'd been friends since grade school. One was named Cyrus. The other was Jeff, and they practiced twice a week in Jeff's bedroom. The best ever death metal band out of Denton never settled on a name. But the top three contenders, after weeks of debate, were Satan's Fingers, and the Killers, and the Hospital Bombers. Mountain Goats. My guest is John Darnio, who's the singer-songwriter of the band, founder of the band, sometimes the solo member of the band. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that was the song, The Best Ever Death Metal Band out of Denton. Um, lots of satanic imagery in heavy metal. Yeah. Um, were you into that? Like, what did, what did satanic imagery mean to you? What did religion mean to you? Because in order for Satan to have power, religion has to have power. You know, right? Sure. No, you have to. You have to. If you believe in Satan, then you believe in God. Uh, and you, you believe in a Christian have... God. Sure. Well, I think I think there's, there's devils in other, but but the right. idea of this this single malevolent radical personified force of Satan, right? That's I think that's uniquely Christian. If not uniquely Christian, that's the one we usually think of, right? Is like the king of all the personified evil gods, right? So, but um, when I was a kid, uh, I went to Catholic school before the divorce, uh, and. And I was just really attracted to this religious thinking, but there's always that, um, it's so pretentious to quote Baudelaire, but <laughs> the shimmer of evil, right? You know, the, the you, you hear about the evil things, they don't want to instruct you in them because there's no, 
you know, there's no no benefit in that. But at the same time, so there are these forbidden things that sort of call to you from the distance, and those are the ones you know that you want to have a harder look at. And that was something that, as a child, I was really curious about to a, a an almost morbid point. You know, like the idea that you could that there was a world behind the world that like that this was only the part you could see, and the idea that the other one might be harmful was terrifying to me, and at the same time irresistibly attractive. And so when I was 13, I became one of the most tiresome atheists on the planet, and I was carrying Nietzsche around my junior high. But <laughs> but prior to that, I used to think about the devil a lot, you know, I was like, uh, and, and think about, when you would hear about devil worshipers, right, how could somebody want to ally themselves with somebody whose entire nature compels him to do you harm, right? The devil can't do right by anybody. It, it's, it's not in his nature. He can't, right? Uh, and yet people are said to worship him. And that was the sort of idea that, as a young man, I couldn't get my head entirely around, you know, or understand the concept of the devil as a principle rather than a being. And so, so yeah, it was it was infinitely appealing to me. At the same time, I was afraid to approach it too much. Since um, Satan is a kind of prominent figure in <laughs> some heavy metal music, <laughs> yes, a lot, yeah, and certainly interpreters being a prominent figure in heavy metal music by um, Christian groups who have sure. opposed it over the years. Did your interest in this, like, other possible world and in the devil uh, play in at all to your interest in metal or in extreme music? I think, actually, my interest in metal comes from a different place insofar as I wasn't into it. when It was another thing where I, when I first heard the term and I heard, it, well, this is a very loud music. It's much louder than other musics. And I, was, I wanted to know about this extreme music. But it wasn't what I naturally gravitated to. So when I'd meet metal kids, I was really curious, what is it about the music you like that makes it work for you, right? And that was around the time of uh, the number of the beast by Iron Maiden and Peace of Mind, right? And uh, and after the you know, I mean, ACDC still sort of counted as heavy metal at that time. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't the demonic stuff that attracted me then, because by then I was reading, you know, I, I was reading poetry that that liked to talk about the devil. But the but the the thing about metal that attracted me then was was the energy and the total lack of guile. Metal sort of it has its own code of cool. But it's not really trying to be cool, you know, and that was very refreshing to me that, that, that metal is, is very much about expressing something that seems awesome to you, uh, even if at the time, you know, much of the world was going to mock and reject it. You know, bands like Iron Maiden said, no, this is the music we like that we want to make. So you have um, your, your, your first novel is is on that uh, a series of, of short books called 33 and a Third in which somebody right. writes a tribute to their favorite album. But you did yours as fiction. And so right. yours is through the voice of a teenager who's um, in a mental health facility and is obsessed with the Black Sabbath album, Master of Reality. Right. So the book is all about his obsession with that, and he gives a kind of track-by-track disquisition <laughs> about what each right, track right. means and what Ozzy Osbourne symbolizes. and. And and so on and and so like the satanic imagery really means something to him, and I know since you worked at a mental health facility and worked with teenagers there, did you find that in some of the teenagers that that, that satanic imagery really kind of connected to them for whatever reason? No, most of the most of the teenagers who wanted to do Satan stuff that I knew were doing it specifically to make the adults jump. Right, that was the 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 main thing is like. If you if you find an adult who really believes that a Satan exists, who wants to steal your soul, right, and you say Satan to that adult with a look, particular look on your face, you can get a giant rise out of that adult, right? If you and Satan is an awesome weapon in that case because, you know, because these people who really strongly believe that, if they see you talking about how you want to worship Satan or whatever, uh, 
it's sort of like if you're working with two-year-olds, right, and a two-year-old finds out what really bothers you, well, he's extraordinarily excited to have this power now, you know, and he'll just keep doing the thing that bothers you because it's nice to be able to have that kind of control, right? And uh, and for most of the teenagers who were into that stuff that I knew, it was about 100%. Watch how people react when I do this. I'd like to play another song. Um, cool. And this is from an album that's pretty autobiographical, and a lot of the songs on this album relate to the abuse that your father meted out. My stepfather. Stepfather. Thank you for correcting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the song I want to play is called Dance Music. Would you introduce it for us? This is a song called Dance Music that takes place during two uh, disparate points of my life. And uh, the first one, I'm I'm five, uh, and we've uh, the divorce is fresh, and we just moved across town. And it was when I first started to notice sort of uh, cracks in the edifice of the new home. And then the next one, uh, the second half of, of the song, I'm a teenager, and I'm sort of exploring my own... Uh, my own ways of of of, uh, of wrecking myself, <laughs> and and your anger at your stepfather for doing things like throwing glasses at your mother's head. Yeah, and there's but there's like I said, I don't want to sort of localize it entirely there. It's like there's also I'm becoming a person who, owing to the last ten years or so of experience, has really learned to internalize uh, stuff and is is uh, is taking stuff out on himself. Okay, so let's hear dance music. This is the Mountain Goats, which is. The, the band led by my guest, John Darnell. All right, I'm on Johnson Avenue in San Luis Obispo, and I'm five years old or six, maybe. And indications that there's something wrong with our new house. Trip down the wire twice daily, I'm in the living room watching the Watergate hearings while my stepfather yells at my mother, launches a glass across the room, straight at her head, and I dash upstairs to take cover, lean in close to my little record player on the floor. So this is what the volume knob's for I listen to dance music Dance music Okay, so look, I'm 17 years old And you're the last best thing I got going But then the special secret sickness starts to eat through you What am I supposed to do? No way of knowing, so I follow you down your twisting alleyways Find a few cul-de-sacs of my own There's only one place this road ever ends up And I don't want to die alone Let me down, let me down, let me down gently When the police come to get me, I'm listening to dance Music Dance Music So that's dance music by my guest John Darnell, he wrote the song and 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 sings it. And his band is called the Mountain Goats. And this is from a pretty autobiographical uh, album. Yeah. That was released in what two thousand five. Two thousand five. Yeah. Yeah. So this was like the year it was released the year after your stepfather died. Would you have written the song when he was still alive? No, no, I didn't write any of them until after he died. Um, it, when he died, stuff cracked open in me that had been sitting. Uh, Sort of, sort of waiting. Um, so, what happens in the song is like you retreat and go upstairs and put on your headphones, which you told us before is what you used right. to do. There's also a scene within the song, and I say a scene because you, your songs kind of are like little stories. Um, there's a scene where you uh, or your character at age 17 is in his room when the police come to 
get him and I'm actually in a car. You're in a car. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I don't know if I specified in the song. It's like it's just, it's a real scene, so I'm actually in a car. Yeah, well, that's what I was wondering. And were you were you like doing drugs? Was that the issue? So, um, without naming any names, <laughs> my girlfriend and I had gotten into really hard drugs uh, mm-hmm. and uh, heroin, and uh, and we were doing it a lot and, and enjoying it. And uh, we pulled up to her house one evening after an evening out, pretty high, I think, and. Uh, and she said, uh, and I remember the phrasing because it was unusual, what's a police doing at my house, right? And uh, her mom had discovered our, our stuff and, uh, and had called the police, uh, which is the right thing to do, I want to say, in retrospect. <laughs> uh, but at the time, we were pretty angry. And, uh, and yeah, we listened at the time to the, the Sisters of Mercy and other, other dancey goth stuff. But, so that's what's going on is sort of there's this moment after, I mean, you get, when you're taking a lot of drugs, you go through these periods of feeling like you're golden and nothing can touch you and, and, and the police are stupid and they, and they can't catch you and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, at the moment when one of them taps on your window, all of that just crumbles. Right? And, so, and so that's that moment. Okay. At, at the risk of, of sounding stupid here, how does a 17-year-old like you who is you know, deeply into literature and music and really smart, though really unhappy at home, how does someone like you end up doing heroin? I mean, I mean c- because I, you're smart enough to know how dangerous it is. Oh, but no, I mean, y- your intelligence doesn't override your desire to destroy yourself. <laughs> you know, it's like I really, really, I did not want to be in my own skin. Uh, I, 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 I really wanted to get high and stay high, you know. Uh, and I also had this fear of going too far. Every time it's like I know people who 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 got way, way closer to the edge than I did. Um, but, but yeah, a, 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 any any opportunity to check out of of uh, daily consciousness was welcome for me then. But you say it was also an instinct to destroy yourself. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's, it's a, I mean, that's, it's kind of plainly what it is. It's like, especially if you're using needles, it's like every single time you do it, you're jabbing something into your vein. You know, it's like visually you can see this is, you are attacking your own body. But I was, I was into all that kind of stuff, you know, in self-mutilation and, and, uh, and, so I have to ask you about self-mutilation. You know, I, it's something I guess I've really wanted to understand, and I think I don't quite get it. Um, I'm so pain-averse. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm very, very pain-averse. So I don't really understand the urge to inflict pain on yourself. Well, I want to say that I, I mean, and I'm not, uh, I, I'm not a doctor, I'm not, so I can't, I can't really speak authoritatively about this. My suspicion is that it's different for everybody, that you can't speak monolithically about why people do that. And I think, actually, this is one major problem in the treatment of younger people is there's this assumption that there's a model on which you can treat everybody, and everybody's different. You know, I mean, and everybody's different is such a facile truism that I think we, we say, well, of course everybody's different. Now, here's where's the generality that I can apply to everybody, but there isn't one. Um, but for me, I mean, this is hard to explain if you're pain averse. It hurt bad, and that felt good, in part because it's about controlling pain, right? It's about remaining in control. I get to do this. I say where my limits are, you know? What is it that you did to yourself? Oh, <laughs> I feel really it's, it's interesting, Kim, because I never talk about this. I, I, I carried a razor around in my wallet, uh, uh, a sharp razor, and when things would get really rough in my head, I would just go cut my arms or legs. And did people know you were doing that? Um, my girlfriend did. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I was in a lot of denial about who knew what, uh, back then, but yeah, I mean, if you, my friends knew they didn't like it, but I think that's part of the appeal if you're 16 is like, you know, your friends don't like it and you say, yes, but it's my body and I'll do what I like with it. Right. And I think that's what it's about, or at least was for me is stating 
that my body belongs to me and I will do what I like with it, whether anyone likes it or not. You had said before that your girlfriend's parents did the right thing when they found your needles yeah. and called the police. So what was the outcome of the police showing up and finding you? We didn't have anything in the car, so they couldn't do anything. They had to leave. They, uh, they yelled at us and called us names and were really unpleasant, and they had to leave. And then? Uh, then we kept right on at it. Uh, I overdosed later that summer. I woke up handcuffed to the bed. Handcuffed I, by who? Uh, the police. Well, the police or the, or the staff. I'm not sure. I think I had become violent under the influence of the opiate antagonist they put in me, uh, which I think was Narcan, but I'm not sure. Uh, and they'd also um, they'd put um, activated charcoal in my lungs. Uh, and so I guess when some combination of whatever they were trying to do to resuscitate me kicked in, I got really violent, and so they handcuffed me to the bed. And I, that's how I woke up. I don't know how many days later, but I tried to move my wrist. And I, I did decide it was sort of time for me to, I didn't want to die. You know, it, it was like, I thought that I did until I was close enough. And then I knew I, I needed to, to change things a little bit. I mean, I didn't want to stop using drugs and I didn't stop using drugs, but I wanted to stop using heroin daily. And I did. So you say you decided you didn't want to die. Before, I think so. Before I mean, that, I wouldn't you weren't have put so a, sure? I don't think, I mean, I think if you'd have asked me at either point, I would have said I wanted to die, but not right then. <laughs> and so it's like, I I, uh, I wanted to destroy myself. It's hard. I mean, I, this is tie into the book. Is I, I really wanted to destroy myself, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. Either I was afraid, you know, or the thought of how angry it would make my friends who were always counseling me against doing it. Because I talked about it constantly. It was like, I never shut up about suicide back then. And, uh, uh, and my friends would, you know. I had some who were who were saying, you know, no, it's <laughs> you can't do that. So whatever combination of things, you know, and whatever enjoyment I was also bringing from life, because it was it was a busy, it was a it was a you know, uh, I don't want <laughs> I don't like to say this, but it was an exciting time. You know, it's like I was I was doing the things that were dangerous and tasting that sort of that rare air of, of doing dangerous things. I read, and I don't know if this is true or not, that you once considered jumping onto train tracks. Yeah, yeah, I had two. There were there were two methods that I was obsessed with, and and one was putting my head on the tracks, which is like felt. Yeah, it feels funny to say that now because it's that person is very far from where I sit now. So when you were working at a mental health facility, working with teenagers there, I'm sure some of them must have been suicide survivors or sure. teenagers who had flirted with the idea of suicide. Was it therapeutic for you to be with them and to be the older person and to be, you know, more of the authority figure, more of the adult, more of the person who was there to help and guide them as the person, as opposed to the person who was uh, in danger of giving in to that kind of urge themselves? I mean, possibly sometimes, but you want to be careful not to be using your work as a caregiver as something therapeutic for you, right? I go to a therapist for that. Oh, that's such um, a good point. Right. As a, as, yeah. a, as a caregiver, I'm not there to take care of myself, and it is not a patient's responsibility to take care of any of my stuff, right? And so, yes. so I'd always try to keep myself out of it. You would occasionally meet a patient very, I mean, you know, once in seven years, you'd want to go, I'm going to disclose something here because I want you to know that I see a little something of my younger self in you. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the parameters of working involve checking yourself at the door. You still bring you, the self is a giant thing, right? But the self who needs help and the self who needs to be healed and repaired, that's, that's the guy you need to leave in the car when you pull in the parking lot of the, of the facility because those patients have their own problems. They don't need to be helping you. Let's hear more music. The song I want to play is called No Children. 
this is about a fictional couple that you wrote many songs about. Yes. They do not have a good relationship. No. The refrain in... Define good. <laughs> <laughs> the refrain in this song is, I hope you die. I hope we both die. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about this couple and about the point the relationship is in at the point of this song. So this may take a minute. I want to do the genesis of where I got to these people and then tell you about them. So, so I was reading a lot of poetry when I was 21. I was reading to John Berryman. And so impressed by the idea of making some project where you had the same character that you did 400 poems about. You know, you really live with this person and become and house this person. And, uh, and I got this idea to write about a divorcing couple because I grew up in Southern California and it really seemed like the defining fact of so many of my friends' lives was the divorce of their parents. It was like this was a thing that wasn't strange for us that I think, you know, in other parts of the country... Uh, might have been stranger, and certainly a generation or two before, it was a big deal. And But for us, it was par for the course. Your parents, if they're not divorced now, they're going to get divorced a little later. And uh, and I thought about divorce a lot and what it what it meant, you know, what it had meant to our house, what it meant to other friends. You have friends whose parents are divorcing when they're teenagers, and, and you know, that's sort of like a wrecking ball just coming into the world that seemed stable for them. And uh, so I wanted to write about divorce, and I wanted to write from the point of view of, a, of an alcoholic couple, um, and I had this this vision of them just fleeing toward, uh, at the time I was uh, in recovery, and there's a thing, they, they talk about uh, doing a geographical, right? Moving someplace to get away from your problems, right? But you can't run away from yourself, so you'll still be there. And it's sort of the lesson they continue not learning as they flee across the bottom of the country and wind up in Tallahassee. Uh, when they get to Tallahassee, that's when they they run out of, out of road, and so they, they live in the same decaying house, and that's when all their problems start to collapse on them. Uh, by the time we get to know children, they're just fighting all the time. And they're fairly honest with each other, which is their one saving grace. <laughs> so this is a pretty angry song. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, it was written on an airplane, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, and it was in part uh, a joke. I had heard this song. I always forget who it's by. Um, uh, I cannot remember the name of the artist. Uh, I Hope You Dance, it was called. And I was driving to the airport, and I think I was late. And the chorus of I Hope You Dance came on, and I said, I hope you die. And it struck me as funny. Uh, and so I wrote it down, and then I wrote some more lyrics on the airplane. When we landed in Athens, Georgia, I wrote the rest of the lyrics in the hotel room, including a number of verses that didn't make it. it there, there were originally four or five pages to this thing. Okay, so this is a song written and sung by my guest, John Darneal, from Mountain Goat's album, Tallahassee. It's, all, it's called No Children. I hope I cut myself shaving tomorrow. I hope it bleeds all day long Our friends say it's darkest before the sun rises We're pretty sure they're all wrong I hope it stays dark forever I hope the worst isn't over And I hope you blink before I do I hope I never get sober And I hope when you think of me years down the line You can't find one good thing to say And I'd hope that if I found the strength to walk out You'd stay the hell out of my Coming down with me Hand in unlovable hand And I hope you die I hope we both die That's No Children from the Mountain Goats album, Tallahassee. My guest is John Darneal, who's the founder, songwriter, and singer of the Mountain Goats. He's also a novelist, and his new novel, Wolf in White Van, has just been published. 
So we've talked a lot about how you, uh, how important listening to music was to you. How did you start writing music? Um, I took piano lessons when I was a child, um, and I didn't have any gift for melody at all. I, I still remember the exact melody of the one piece that I tried to write for a songwriting competition that my piano teacher wanted me to enter. But then I stopped being, like my first act of rebellion was at 12 to just stop going to piano lessons. Skill diminished very quickly. Your left hand sort of becomes a brick. But I was really into rock and roll, and I really wanted to. I mean, I think, I guess this isn't true, but it felt to me like who wouldn't want to be the singer? You know, I couldn't really sing. Uh, friends had always told me I couldn't sing for anything, but this did not stop me from singing all the time. Um, but I just felt like I wanted to be, to have a microphone in my hand and to be singing. You know, I didn't have any vision, excuse me, I didn't have any vision beyond that. And so I was in bands from the sixth grade on. My friend uh, John Edmonds and I had a, a band with the extremely threatening and uh, and very metal name of Blossom. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's no, hysterical. you better look out. <laughs> you should look out for Blossom when they come to your town. They'll they'll burn everything to the ground. And uh, I mean, I don't. I mean, I think we had some songs. Uh, <laughs> I won't identify her by last name, but I think most of my songs were, were for my friend Lisa, who I really had a big crush on. And uh, uh, junior high, I was pretty much alone in junior high. I didn't have close friends uh, at all. It was a, a hard and threatening place for me, junior high. Um, but then in high school, I started meeting up with people who seemed cool to me, and uh, and at first I was in a Stooges style, you know, uh, well, not actually in the same universe as the Stooges, but that was who we liked, right? A <laughs> uh, style band called uh, Straw Dogs, not the same as the Chicago Straw Dogs, who were a punk band, but there was room for two at the time because we weren't going anywhere. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, then I finally, I mean, I think real songwriting started with my friend Mark at a band called The Congress, where we'd write everything in a single session. He would give me a title and I'd write down lyrics and I'd write a bass line we'd record it right away. Um, and it was, so it was sort of this exercise in fast writing and in sort of trying to get to a song before you could have too many thoughts about it, I think. I mean, that's sort of what it was about for me. It was a really great exercise because we'd record five or six songs a session, whether it's of much do you re- quality. Do you remember the songs? Oh, yes. <laughs> I think I could probably do a set of them if I had to. <laughs> Can you tell us the lyrics to one of those songs? Oh man, um, uh, <laughs> I yeah, I mean, uh, there's several. Um, do I remember my mask? Uh, I mean, I'm immediately going to damage control. This is something I wrote when I was 16. Uh, I say you spent Champagne Saturday on your knees with your hands on the clock and your head through the wall. Your head through and your head through the wall was a line specified by Mark that I had to include in the lyric uh, when he gave me the title "My Mask." Uh, so you spent Champagne Saturday on your knees with your eyes on the clock and your head through the wall. The sun came through the window sickly, and you didn't look up, you didn't flinch, buy you a chainsaw for your birthday, all the wine you could ever drink. Oh, man. Oh, I'm blanking. Oh, I was so close. Because um, <laughs> I had this big triumphant moment where I suddenly yell, Hey, John Barleycorn, ho, John Barleycorn, old and young, thy praise is sung, John Barleycorn. Uh, it was one of our better numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like it was almost a game where, where your collaborator gave you a line you had to put in. Well, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, that was just that one song. He actually almost never did that. Oh, okay. My Mask turned out to be one of the bigger ones, though. I mean, it was also, it was also a drinking game. We would drink as we, as we recorded, and, and invariably the last couple songs of a session would just be this unlistenable dirge, right? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, there's a very exciting time when you're young and you start to realize that you don't have to follow any particular rules to make music, like that this is the big revolutionary reveal of post-John Cage music, is you can do what you like. Music is 
organized or even unorganized sound that one listens to rather than just having it in the air. And even that's music, you know, the, the idea that there aren't any actual parameters for what counts as music. And these were ideas that were very fresh to us. And so and there's a feeling of absolute freedom that was super, I mean, f- for me in my personal life, it was a very welcome feeling at the time. You know, you make music for three hours and you are even more than when you're listening to it, you are utterly absorbed. And, uh, and so, yeah, Mark and I would, uh, would do a lot of Congress stuff, <laughs> many, many Congress sessions. So the kind of um, shelter that you found in music when you were, you were young and yeah. very unhappy, do you have fans who find that kind of shelter in your music now? I, the, yes. I mean, it feels presumptuous to say yes. I, it's like, but, but I know because they tell me that what I do is useful to them. And this is uh, uh, an honor so profound that I don't know how to talk about it. It's, uh, I mean, how often does a person get to feel like, well, this was worth living for. This was worth coming this way for, you know, but that's how I feel about that. It's like music was all to me. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's incredible to me that I can make things that people can use in that way. I imagine that people who really relate to the music want to share their story. They feel yeah. like probably like they, they've heard yours, they get yours and it relates to theirs and they want to tell you theirs. Um, what's that like for you hearing a lot of people's very difficult, maybe sometimes even tragic stories? It's an honor, you know, it's like, it can be very heavy, you know, I mean, it's like, it's a funny thing to say, since I'm doing interviews to promote a book and stuff, but it's like, it makes me glad I'm not really famous, you know what I mean? It's like, because I think I'm not the only person who writes music that's really useful to people, and that people are able to use in times of severe trial, and I think at some point, you know, people must reach a point where they say, well, I've heard so many, I've had so many stories shared with me that, it, that like, it's very intense, it's very, because I, I, I hang out and sign records for an hour or two hours every night, and I like to hear as many people's stories as I can because if somebody wants to share their story with me, I want to honor that, you know. But you do reach a point where it's like, well, one person for them, they're sharing their story and then they're going to go home. But if you are hearing a bunch of them, it gets very intense. It's a lot, you know. But I mean, I want to, for one thing, I kind of have this feeling like I can handle this, you know. And and the other thing is I feel a duty, you know. It's like there's people choose to engage my music because when I say if I make something people can use – I really think there's a lot of music that you can use to heal and save yourself. It's not like I have some magic power and I reached inside somebody and said, oh, you didn't know this about yourself until I wrote this song. That's not true, right? What I did was I made a thing and somebody who needed to find something found mine and chose to meet me out on that ground. It's, it's this sort of area of communication that's unique to music, I think. There's a lot of it that has nothing to do with me. You know, the person who chooses to use that attaches it to their own life as they see fit. I mean, you can hear from this, like, it's it's very intense to have those sorts of conversations, to have people sharing stuff that maybe is secret. But I mean, I try to be worthy of it. You know, it's it's uh, it's, it's an honor. I've worked a lot of jobs. This is the best one. John Darnielle, thank you so much for talking with us. Of course. Thank you. John Darnielle is the founder, singer, and songwriter of the band The Mountain Goats. His new novel is called Wolf in White Van. We've got something special for you on our website, a chapter from the audiobook with John Darnielle doing the reading. That's at freshair.npr.org. We'll close with a song from the latest Mountain Goats album. The album's called Transcendental Youth. The song is called Cry for Judas.
Sometimes you try to freeze time till the slots are a blur of spinning wheels. But I am just a broken machine and I do things that I don't really mean. Long black night, morning frogs, I'm still here. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Dorothy Farabee is our administrative assistant. Our associate producer for online media is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shurrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. Some people crash two or three times.